Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. And by FundraiseForYou.net. FundraiseForYou.net provides solutions to coaches and athletic organizations that need to raise money for their programs. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Div 2 Men's Coach of the Year, Chris Shamity, is now the head coach of the women's program at Loyola Marymount. Today on OTB, we catch up with Skip Gilbert, Chief Executive Officer of U.S. Youth Soccer. A lot of changes and updates to be shared for... Uh, the world of youth development. It's always great to talk to Skip, a former All-American. Uh, by the way, Chris, he, uh, he saved one of my penalty kicks when I was in college. All-American keeper back at the University of Vermont. Uh, went through all kinds of executive jobs, uh, sports-related, and then he came back to the game that we love. So, Chris Shamity, this is right up your alley. I know you are big into youth development. Uh, you've worked at every level of soccer in this country. So, uh, you got to be excited about talking to Skip, huh? Yeah, Skip has a role uh, that I'm fascinated with because he, he touches uh, an important part of our landscape, which is this huge umbrella of youth soccer. And, 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 and there's different parts to it, and he's got a big say in how this goes. So I'm really interested in asking some questions of him. By the way, the penalty that you took, did you hit it well or did he just say <laughs> I hit it, it well. well. I always did uh, I, side foot, low, my left, low left, uh, his right, low right, and – he, he made the save. It was at uh, my homecoming at the University of Massachusetts. He was playing for UVM. He was an All-American. I was definitely thinking about that. I was a freshman. And why they put me in the PK spot, I have no idea. But uh, I, I think it wasn't until my junior year when I took the PKs again after that miss. <laughs> so, God, you know, so I, I got to talk to you, though, about this weekend. I'm watching the U.S. Win, women's national team. They had two games. Uh, first of all, I was excited to see some new players in there, some fresh from fresh blood. He's really trying to change that roster now because, um, you know, this women's national team has reminded me of that old men's national team with, with Harksy and Miola where they lasted for three cycles. And now he's finally got some, some young blood in there. Um, and they looked pretty good. Zero, zero against Czech Republic, but then against New Zealand, three own goals. This poor woman who plays for, uh, for New Zealand. Her name is uh, Michaela Moore. Uh, in the first half, you said, how, how weird was that? Have you ever seen anything like that before? I, I've never seen that before. And I, I have to giggle because when I saw it, I, it's, I don't speak to my wife much about soccer, but I said, <laughs> baby, you got to hear this one. Uh, there's three in the first half and I've never seen that ever happen before. So we all had a laugh about it. Although I feel for obviously the player because I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, obviously. Right. And I tell you, we've all scored own goals. It's just the way it play. If you played the game, you scored an own goal. I, uh, I scored one again my freshman year in college. Knocked the ball back to the keeper just over midfield. And when I looked up, he was at the top of his box. The way out. <laughs> and it went over. I was devastated. And, you, you know, as a player, it hurts. People understand. But, you know, some are worse than others. And none of her three were that bad, uh, but they were not great. You know, the, the defender's trying to keep the ball from going across the box, and, and you got to get something on it. And, man, she nailed one head ball, like, in the, in the corner, <laughs> low, hit it hard. But uh, that poor girl in the shower must have just been devastated. 
Yeah, there are certain teams that plays in certain ways, like Germany in the last Euros. Like there was a game or two where they had two or three own goals uh, that benefited them because they'll get to certain spots. Man City does this as well. They'll hit such a hard ball across the box, right across the six. It puts keepers in a tough spot and defenders in a really tough spot. So sometimes teams get more own goals simply based on how they play. Yeah, and you see, yeah, they're flooding the box. So uh, this this wave of players are running into the box, and, and she's got to get something on it. But I, I just I felt for her anyway. Um, but also uh, the the player catcher uh, Katerina Macario. Have you seen her play? You you must have. She. She's really impactful, and right away, she's going to be a, the number 10 on that team, I believe. Yeah, there's a generational change, right? Because Carly yeah. Lloyd and, and some of the older players are, are, you know, gracefully being phased out, and a new group is coming in. She's got a load of potential. She's so strong. She's got a lot of options in her game. I think she's going to be a part of the future. And then you have Dennis Rodman's daughters out there, and yeah. she has a chance to be a star as well. So, you know, when you start to give these players some games and minutes, they get used to that international level, and I think they're going to be part of that scene for a long time now. And now you've coached women, you've coached men. Um, something happens when you go to the World Cup level, to the national team level, the pace of play picks up. And even if you're playing well in your domestic league, there's, there's something about that level. It is at another pace and you need youth. And it seems like this U.S. women's national team has not had that, especially in the last cycle. You agree? Yeah, it's it's an age-old question. I think the old way of approaching things was that we needed experience on the field and we need mm -hmm. to make sure that that is the way, the ins and outs of that. And then you have teams like Red Bull who globally, you know, have put out a brand of soccer where everyone is on the younger side of things because they want more mobility. They want to cover more ground. And the data says that that will lead to more wins. And so experience is a little bit less value now than it used to be. And I think you're seeing this on the men's national team as well. There's very few senior players in there. Zimmerman is considered an older player in that group, but everybody else has to be in that younger ability to cover tons of ground and regenerate quickly and, for the most part, reduce injury, uh, which becomes a bigger part of things when you have older players. Well, you bring the men's team in um, and uh, compared to the women, and, and it seems like the women have guaranteed contracts, and I don't think that's always a good idea because I think – not having a guaranteed spot on the national team creates an, an edge, gives you an edge, a little bit of fire in the belly that, um, that, that creates competition, you know, for, for positions. And it seems like the women had these guaranteed contracts and it seemed like uh, familiarity breeds content a little bit. Um, I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are, are on that, but I always thought it was odd. You know, they're talking about the two different contracts and everything, but I think motivation wise, boy, uh, national teams to gift, uh, to be a guaranteed spot is, is tough on a coach, I think. Tough on a coach, but at the same time, I think if, if the people in the room are smart, that it's, it's all about the honor of playing for the country, you know, mm -hmm. and so that becomes the prime motivation. Uh, and then if you want to splinter it past that, it's like, okay, yeah, there's a guaranteed contract, but, you know, is there that commercial? Is there this? Is there that? You know, Megan Rapino has a Subway commercial that runs, and we've seen Abby Wambach on commercials and things like that. And that, those are big paydays. And so the motivation to become one of the best within the national team level uh, should still be there because there's a financial piece to it as well. So I, I think the women and the men are all proud to play for their country, and then it's a matter of how far can they go at the international stage because there is a payday at the end of that. So there always should be motivation there. 
Absolutely. With the money wise and for playing for your country, it just seemed that if you put one face on the men's national team right now, they tried to make it politic, but that's changed. It's a little bit of Weston McKinney now, uh, Tyler Adams, maybe it seemed to float. Uh, the women had their stars, uh, you know, Morgan and, and Rapino, and they've had a, a few of them for, I think, three cycles now. So this should be interesting. This will be good. It seemed like uh, everybody's missed the last cycle because of COVID, a lot of limited play. Um, and, you know, to, to go back to your point before about sort of, uh, keeping things fresh, a coach has to have a little bit of mixture of some old and some new players, right? Some experience and some some youth. And, um, you know, they you sort of take over the position. Like people were talking about, was Michael Bradley going to be in this cycle as well? And and it turns out, no. And I was talking talk about Jeff Vegas. You know, Jeff Vegas got the, the, the national team playing outside back, got him into the World Cup. And then he aged out, like right in qualifying. You know, he said, I just lost a step overnight. It's so... Um, so it's it's a tough game at that level, you know, where you where you talk about a twenty nine year old is getting old, you know, it's it's amazing. Yeah, the, I mean, I think coaches are choosing certain game models, obviously, and and how you play, meaning how you defend, how you attack. There's, you know, everything is so dialed in with data now, so there's a sense that okay, well, if we're going to play in this certain style, then we need to be able to run X amount. And there are players who, for their club team, don't play that way, or they don't feel like they have it in them to be able to cover that much ground. So sometimes they don't get selected for the national national team because their game model parts are different and the data doesn't necessarily match up. And in what you're saying before, like, you know, there is a difference between the domestic level and the international level. And sometimes that one little gear higher some players can say, yeah, I can do that. And for some players, it's a little bit harder to take that extra step. So, for example, in Jeff Agus's case, you know, if he feels like he slows down one notch and the game's going one notch higher, that's enough of a, of a gap where maybe he doesn't get selected the next round. Right. And you're talking about data now, which is a lot that we didn't have uh, before, but coaches seem to utilize quite a bit now. So uh, do, do you use that with your college players? Yeah, I mean, you know, I just I just sat the kids down the other day and had them watch Moneyball, you know, uh, and, and Brad Pitt being Billy Bean, the GM of the A's. And uh, a lot of that came from that, yeah, where, you know, they had that, that guy working as an assistant GM who's from Yale, uh, and he was uh, an economy major and all that stuff. And now you're seeing that all across Major League Baseball and it's trickled down to all the different sports. Yeah, I mean, uh, connected to LAFC, they certainly have a guy there who's their director of scouting, who's data-driven and can whip up an algorithm in no time and help, <laughs> you know, sort out, uh, you know, which player to pick. And, and there's, there's numbers, and this was the premise of the whole Moneyball movie, is it shouldn't be based on instinct and just the eye test. It should be based on data. And so you get some more efficiencies on that at, at the college level, yeah, the resources aren't exactly the same, but we all right. have like GPS that we wear now. And, you know, we can come back from practice and we can down to the letter, tell how much a player has done, you know, how much work have they put into it? How much ground have they covered? How many times have they hit their highest speeds? And that allows us to modify training cycles, which should keep them uh, avoiding injuries and then also getting to peak performances earlier. So all that's dialed in at the highest levels now. Well, I always laugh because I mean, I got involved with soccer originally because there was no data RBIs and runs batted in earned run average. It was just like, I got to go out and play. It reminded me of sort of pick up basketball, just this free flow of you know creativity and athleticism. So, uh, but it's obviously uh, been very, very useful for teams, finding people in the red zone and, and all that. Um, 
U.S. men's national team players. Uh, you know, this is a good problem, Chris. I, I can't even keep track of all the players that are abroad now. Um, I think they had 28 players in Europe this weekend. 11 started uh, for two goals and one of six. Uh, six subbed on, six on the bench, four didn't dress, one had no game. Um, I remember when we knew the one or two American players that were overseas, and now we have a whole bunch that we have to kind of keep track of. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. you know. And it even goes back to your note about uh, the national team. There's a big pool, and it's tough to keep track of them all and how you yeah, I, rotate them in. For sure. I mean, the world has gotten smaller. So, you know, data is easier to share. Uh, videos are easier to see. There's software out there, for example, with pro teams. You can – get on Y scout and within 24 hours, you can watch any game in the world within 24 hours. And so the ability for a scout in any country to watch a player from a different country is, you know, so easy to do now. So the market gets a little bit, uh, you know, covered. It really gets covered very well. And then you also have these branding issues going on. Like for example, Bayern Munich opening up an office in New York city and making sure they have a relationship with uh, in, in our case in MLS, it's FC Dallas and they've signed two or three of the young players that have come out of FC Dallas to go over to Germany. And, and there's a branding aspect to that as well, but also, you know, in a market efficiency, can we get a kid who's not being paid a lot of money and bring them into our system and develop into something really big. Uh, so th there's so much of that nowadays that it's hard to keep track of, but the great thing is a lot of young American players have been able to benefit from this and get some really good opportunities overseas. That's great. This plays right into um, us talking to Skip Gilbert from U.S. Youth Soccer. So um, we are now exporting young soccer players. Uh, we're like Brazil. Uh, maybe not at Brazil's level yet, but, uh, but it's fun to see that, that guys go overseas. They also have a domestic option. They have a college option. Um, so there's a lot out there for the players, uh, certainly that old-timers like Skip and myself did not have. So, all right. So let's take a break here. Uh, you listen to Over the Ball. Remember, we have a new phone number, 424-229-2247. Call us, text us with your questions, concerns, uh, topics, and things that we want to talk about or that you want us to talk about on the show, and, uh, and we'll get to it. All right, you listen to Over the Ball. We'll be back with Skip Gilbert right after this. All right, we're back on Over the Ball. Our guest today is the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, Skip Gilbert. Uh, Skip has played at every level of this game in this country, a college All-American at the University of Vermont, where he majored in cow tipping, no, and, and actually parrying and tipping balls off. Uh, but he went into work in uh, taking executive positions at all kinds of sports-related industries. But he made his way back to the game that started it all and that he loves, soccer. And uh, Skip, I got to tell you, you took over. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to Over the Ball. How are you? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to be here talking to you. Yeah, so you took over this challenge. And as soon as you get it, uh, COVID hits. So, I mean, that was probably not part of the, the, uh, the job interview or your plan, your business strategy uh, moving forward. But uh, how has that changed things uh, for you right out of the gate? And then you guys are up to some big things right now. Why don't you talk about that as well? Sure. You know, I mean, as, as detrimental as, as COVID was for everybody from, you know, health, mental health across the spectrum to have to stay indoors, you know, the one good thing about it from our perspective is it really gave us the opportunity to look in the mirror, you know, I mean, and, and to look at what are we doing and where is our place in the youth ecosystem, you know, not just within the soccer ecosystem, but youth sports, you know, and what's going on and how can we make some changes, make some maneuvering to be able to position us so that one, finally, the lights are all green around the country and hopefully around the world, you know, we can be back in better shape. 
and I, I said this, or I say this all the time to our staff, if we were building USYS for tomorrow's players today, what would it look like? If it looked like exactly as it is now, great, don't touch it. If we need to make some modern, you know, minor modifications, let's do so. If we need to really look at what's going on and make some changes, then we need to, you know, make those progressive movements. So, you know, we're coming out of the gates. We, as you had mentioned, we've got some changes coming. You know, we're excited about a number of different elements, both at the top of the pyramid where unfortunately we spend too much of our time, but also right down at the base of the pyramid. You know, and again, I come from the Olympic movement. There should only be three priorities for anybody. Build the base, promote the sport, achieve sustained competitive success. That's all we need to think about. But, you know, build the base is really where we need to go. You know, there's an article in Soccer America by Dan Wu who interviewed you. Um, they called it the alphabet soup of, of leagues and, num- and names. And it, it does. It gets, it gets very confusing. So I think the hard part is to come in this late when so many, so many uh, different – uh, groups are already functioning. And I, I think what I noticed with my daughter's team, when, you know, coming up was, you know, why were they playing every weekend in far off places, three, four hours away? And it just seemed like it to me, I hate to be cynical, but a little bit of a money-making situation where they would do these tournaments where the kids wouldn't get many touches on the balls. They'd be in vans all day. So um, these have all already been created. So you've stepped into sort of a hornet's nest, I would imagine. And there's probably pushback. There is. And, and again, it goes back to the alphabet soup is ruling the roost. You know, and when you look at it from a player development perspective, but more importantly, a player containment perspective in terms of how many kids are we losing each year that mm. no longer feel that they're good enough. And so therefore the game is no longer fun and they leave. And so we need to be cognizant of the fact that, yes, we want the best players. So our, you know, the pro pro ranks are filled with American born, that the national team is winning every time we step out onto the field, but we are sometimes losing our best athletes. And, And a lot of my friends are with other team sports and they love soccer because they say it's a transition sport. By the time the kid turns 11, they're so burnt out that they come to their sport and they thrive. Yeah, because they've got great, great wind and everything else, and uh, they're fit. Chris? Yeah, I mean, that was really one of my first questions right there, Skip, is what, what is the information telling uh, your, your group? Meaning, when are the boys and the girls starting to wane, and then when do they start to you know, unplug from our sport? If you look across just youth sport, it, it's really the minute they cross into those teenage years. And, it, and, and a part of the, the challenge is it's not so much the actual physical activity of the sport, but it's the social aspects, right. you know, of so much time commitment. The problem is, is that the economic engine of youth sports has left the station. And so now the clubs, the leagues, the teams, they all realize that if you keep the kid connected to you 12 months a year, your budgeting process is going to be able to sustain, to keep the lights on, to pay the coaches, to pay the travel fees and everything like that. The problem is, is now the economic engine is looking at 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 8-year-olds. And it's getting to the point where, you know, a kid who's 8 years old still needs to define who they are, what they believe in, and more importantly, what they love. And I'm sure, you know, you've been around the coaching ranks long enough. You can have an 8-year-old that is the best player on the field. By the time they're 13, not even close. And so the reality is, you know, let them play, let them have fun, let them have their experiences, give them the ability to, to do different things. And if they stay with soccer, they're there. 
Got it. Yeah. And I see that as well because I wear my coaching hat, but I also am a parent. And, you know, it's funny because my youngest son has some interest in in playing and he's 10. And a lot of people will ask me, well, what are you going to do with him? And I can honestly tell you guys, like, I don't know. And if I don't know, that's a problem because I spend my career in soccer. So it's a challenge. So, you know, kicking that back to you, Skip, is like, what do you see as a solution going forward? You know, there are a couple of things. One, we almost need to re-energize the fun aspect of it. You know, and again, this is one of our initiatives. It's called League America. And it goes back to the base of the pyramid. I hate the term recreational soccer because it's usually preceded with the word just. He's just a rec player. She's just a rec player. And that's going to drive them out of the game on their own because kids want to be, feel like they're a part of something. They want to compare themselves to their friends. And if all their friends are doing these incredible things at the, at the, you know, the elite travel level and they're not, well, then they're not going to want to be a part of that. So if we can kind of re-engage that, that social aspect of the sport to keep the kids and, and the league America, I, I mean, I, I thought up of one tagline, the official developmental arm for collegiate club soccer. You know, those are the kids that are never going to play high school. They're not going to play college. They just want to go out and play for fun. And we're talking to the adult groups to say, take league America and run with it because how cool would it be for your 10 year old to say, Hey, I play league America. So does my dad. And the reality is, if you look at the ecosystem, you know, even for those who came up, they played D1, they might have played pro, they may have had a, ch- you know, a chance to represent their country. Once they retire, chances are they're going to play adult soccer somewhere and it brings them right back to League America. And so you're creating a connection that allows you know, really, it goes back to our vision, bringing communities together, um, making lifelong fans of the game. And I think we have to change the narrative that we're not putting kids out onto the soccer field to win games so that clubs can go, oh, we're national champions. We're putting kids out there to, to, to literally be fans for life so that when they're, you know, our age, our kids are playing, they're refereeing, they're coaching, they're, they're buying kits, they're going to games, they're, they're buying tickets, watching on TV. If a kid walks away at the age of 12 because he doesn't think he's good enough or she doesn't think she's good enough, what's the likelihood that she's going to be watching an MLS or an NWSL game at the age of 26? You know, that's something that I, I think has been just recent where I know skip when we were growing up, yeah, you played three, four sports. It was just the American way. And you had two players that were really good. And then everybody else was a player and that was fine. There was, there was nothing, you know, and I have found a lot of parents are now like, he's no good. He's no good at it. I'm like, well, is that the point to be, to be good, you, you try your best, but uh, you got to have two great players and then nine players who could just not lose possession and get back on defense, you know? <laughs> so it's sort of like, I think the parents' perspective has really changed as well. And when I always drill down a little bit, it's parents who have not played at a high level. You know, I think a lot of times when I went to coach my daughter in New York, they didn't want me to coach because they said, you played at too high of a level. And I said, well, uh, I'm the last one that's going to get too competitive. I don't think, you know, some of these, these uh, parents get so fired up. It's like they're nine years old. They're girls. Relax, man. Just everybody play. And I think that's what you're talking about with the fun. It, it, it is. And also, I will also kind of go in a different direction is the sense that we've empowered parents to actually be the biggest thorn within the, within the youth sport matrix. Because think about it. Think about the amount of money 
parents are paying, whether it's soccer, hockey, lacrosse, gymnastics, whatever it is, by paying that much money, and for many parents, it's stretching their, annual, you know, their monthly budget, we've almost empowered them to act like a general manager, that they feel like, hey, if I'm paying thousands of dollars, I'm going to let the coach know how I feel, the referee will know how I feel, because right, it's right. my money, and I want a return on my investment. And, and so, again, we, we need to kind of think about changing the narrative so that it becomes more of a, we want ultimately you to be a fan for life. And by goodness, if you're going to end up being a D1 coach or you, you play professionally, you know, good, good going. But there's plenty I, of other places. I, right? <laughs> yeah. And when I hear you speak about that, Skip, I, one, I agree. Two, it's logical. So my question be, then becomes, okay, the other entities that are out there, ECNL, the DA, MLS Next, are you partnering with them in a way where everyone's speaking the same language or do you get outright resistance from these groups in terms of a path forward? It's, you know, it's difficult because, I mean, the reality is we haven't really reached out to, to say, hey, what can we do to partner? but we've never really seen eye to eye on a lot of things. And, and, you know, and again, it's a poach competitive environment where they want our clubs. We want their teams. Uh, everybody's going after each other at the top. You know, I mean, when ECNL started however many years ago, they were designed to be the top of the elite platform. I mean, that seemed to have been their charter and they did it extremely well. And they had great, great teams playing out there, great players. Well, they've seen, again, I think it's the economic engine that, you know, they're starting to get down into the middle tier. And at some point, will they go even further down? In which case there is no difference. And we're all just going to be fighting for the same player. There's no, how are we going to go out and grow the game if most of our clubs just really want to grab, you know, Susie or Johnny from next door's club to bring on to their team, that's not growing the game. That's growing your, your perception of the game. Uh, first of all, Skip, no one's named Susie or Johnny anymore. So you well. really kind of update your names, <laughs> Jared and uh, all these other things. So, um, you know, is there a model out there, Skip, that you're trying to emulate? Like, like, you know, I know the Germans are pretty centrally, uh, you know, uh, they, they do it from sort of with one one set of rules, sort of, for all the, the various leagues. Is there something you're trying to copy or emulate? You know, on, from a soccer perspective, no. I mean, I, I sat through when I, my first week on the job. I was at the U.S. or first month. I was at U.S. Soccer's AGM, and they had brought um, a, a coaching director from one of the other countries in Europe you know, and, and talked about what they do. And what they do is great. And it developed, I mean, they are world-class and they've won a number of World Cups and it seems to work. But they're the size of Delaware. And they don't yeah. have the different, in, they don't have all of the social economic differences that we as a country have. So we can't model after another soccer country. We need to model after what makes U.S. work. You know, and, and so a lot of my experience really has always been NGB driven. You know, look at one of the, the, the most successful organizations in the history of sport, whether it be amateur or professional, is USA Swimming. They've won more world championships, more Olympic medals than any organization on the planet. And if you think about it, those three things I said at the top of the show, build the base, promote the sport, achieve sustained competitive success, 
Those are the priorities of USA Swimming. They focus on the elite, but their bread and butter is the base of the pyramid. Compare that to soccer in this country. U.S. soccer, they focus almost primarily at the top of the elite. They've let the youth run. They've let amateur soccer kind of govern itself. And without that top-down paradigm, everybody's basically fighting over each other for the same thing. And there's never going to be any continuity or any collaboration because everybody wants to beat each other up. And so from that standpoint, you know, we're, we're kind of handcuffed to start. Chris? I, yeah, you, you know, Skip, in terms of different, and I hear you, and I, and I hear it in your voice. So first of all, I champion you and your efforts. So thank you on behalf of all of us soccer people. Uh, in terms of dif- being a differentiator, has, has any thought ever gone into, uh, and I'm just throwing out a, a, left, a left field curveball, if you, if you will, the idea of, of going with biological age versus chronological chronological age you know has that been uh something that has been discussed where where maybe parents uh could go to the usys as a place that is committed to that and maybe that's a differentiator you know we've we've talked about that and and i we're looking at that for league america where you know especially at the grassroots the social side you know kids want to play with their school buddies they don't, they don't, you know, they want to follow right. what is the sort of the normal elite track, um, you know, and then once you get up to that level, you know, then you start looking at the age and the impact on the muscular skeletal, the health, you know, and, and the strength and, and that, and you look and you can see that kids at the, you know, that were born earlier in the year are different in terms of their output than those that are born later, just because they're str- they're older, they're stronger, you know, and so we haven't, we haven't gone that far, but you know, we realize that we need to allow parents to put their kids in with their friends, and that's really at more the base of the pyramid, not all the way up top. That was everything for me, you know, playing sports. You're playing with your, your buddies, your teammates, and I think that's kind of been lost as well. I think you know, Chris, Chris has the, the difficulty of being a coach where he has to win, and it seems like in high school you have to win. Though high school, the game's changed as well. But uh, the one thing I've noticed with, with young, with parents, is that they are demanding that these coaches win when the kids are 8 and 10 and 12 years old. And it just seems so uh, destructive in a way, especially with soccer, where you're trying to teach kids to play out of the back and knock it around and, and play the ball first time and just not just kick it forward, you know. Uh, so I, I think, you know, you, you have a... a a great product there that that I don't think people really understand understand it completely. You know, you know if you if you if you ever have a chance, take a look at you know go to USA Hockey. You know they've got the American Development Model of of coaching, which came out of the United States Olympic Committee. You know, and for their eight nine year olds, it's all about learning the game. It's not about winning. It's not about you know right. you know at, at eight years old. You know, if you have, if you win your, your league championship or you live, whatever, whatever your league is, you know, when you're my age, you're barely going to remember you were alive at eight years old, you know, but you know, when you get older and you're on your high school years, 
Sure. I, I firmly remember my state championship years back in high school, you know, I, proudly. Um, but before Th- that... Thanks for dropping that one in, Skip. That's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you. Okay, gonna, I come through that PR it's like, school. It's like a guy who goes to Harvard. He gets out in the first <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I remember back in the state championship. And I was dating those a, days? I was well, dating a know, supermodel. and uh, listening to it that we beat. But, it, you know, no, no competition here. But, no. you know, going back to one of your questions, Kevin, you have, we've reached across the table... Um, one of the things that we're doing this August is we're launching a competition called Champions Cup. You know, and, and to me, it's Little League World Series for age group soccer. Um, and, and my intent was let's invite the, the national champions for ECNL, the GA, MLS, you, you know, all of the different kind of acronyms. Let's invite the, the teams to come play. And because as much as each of those sanctioning bodies have their, their best teams and they market the heck out of it, as a player, I don't want to be told that I'm the best. I want to earn that right. And so we're putting this together. And quite frankly, if, you know, if ECNL wins every single ma- game across all of the age groups, good for them. You know, I mean, I, even though we're USYS and we want our teams to win, I just want the kids to be able to earn that right. And we're, we've talked to a number of other countries, much like what Little League World Series does. And we, we were thinking, will there be interest? Because soccer is so different. There's interest. And so we're starting to, you know, this year will be small and then hopefully in future years. But I think if we're able to do that, that's probably the starting point where perhaps all of the other sanctioning bodies can finally come together and say, look, this is what's in the best interest of the sport. This is what's in the best interest of the kids. What else can we do to make sure that the experience is worthwhile? But also, by the way, we should be growing the game and figuring out how to keep kids in the game. How, How far down the road are you with that? Is it a go? It's a go. August. Yeah, no, a we're, go. we're a go. Um, it'll be in Austin, uh, middle of August. You know, again, there's never a good time to do anything in the sport. The calendar is so crowded. But yeah. you just sometimes have to say, you know what, if we get 100 teams showing up, great. If we get 10 teams showing up, we at least have to give it a try. Because otherwise, you can't look in the mirror and say, we're trying to bring communities together through the power of soccer. That, you know, we're, we're the nonprofit in the world that says, you know, we're, we're trying to, to do things right for the sport. Yeah, there's some branding with the Little League World Series for sure. And the analogy crossing over to soccer makes a lot of sense. And I think that'd be, I, I could just see kids talking about that as the summer approaches and saying, hey, they're going to get their chance to play against, you know, these other entities because they all operate in their own silos typically. And so this is a way to extend that olive branch for competition. And hopefully, at least from my perspective, you know, having you now engage with more and more of the the leadership of these other entities as well, because if we can create lifelong fans, you know, I think that becomes the goal of everybody in here. And when you talk about fun, you know, I, I always kind of push in those directions as well, because I, I don't, I can't think of a really good team at any level that doesn't have a version of fun. You know, that it's just a part of it, you know, so you don't win a championship and frown. You have a, you have a championship and you smile. And so there's a part of that, that I think as a younger coach, I used to think, oh, that's not part of the equation, but as a little bit more experienced now, uh, I for sure view that as part of the equation at all levels. So I'm happy to hear you talk about that. You know, and, and, and to that point, Chris, dollars for, for college coaches and being able to go around and actually scout and recruit 
is I'm sure getting tighter and tighter, but think about it. Instead of now having to figure out what, you know, what tournament you're going to the showcases, if you knew that the best teams from everywhere was coming into one location, think of how many, you know, how, you know, how much money you would save having to fly all over the country to see kids to be able to see them in one spot. So from a college recruiting standpoint, that also could be a home run for the kids because again, it doesn't matter what sanctioning body you're playing for. You're going to be seen. The game absolutely, the game. yeah. yeah the, the efficiency game. of that makes a lot of sense. And and does Champions Cup does it have some momentum in terms of broadcasting? Will games be streamed? Will we get ESPN online one day? How does that all work? Yeah, we're just starting those discussions. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with some friends of mine um, at ESPN, and uh, you know, I didn't quite tell them what I was calling for at the start, but I talked to them about Little League World Series, and they said, you know, if we could find a way to duplicate Little League World Series for age group soccer, we'd actually help build it. And that, then I kind of said, yeah, oh, yeah man, your ears lit up and everything else. You <laughs> pretend you went in yeah. there, you were selling Girl Scout cookies for your daughter, and then you just threw that on them, huh? <laughs> hey, uh, the, the, Champions, the Champions Cup, what are the ages? What's the age groups? What's the range? We're going, I think, uh, I think it's 14 up. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Chris, that would do your job at recruiting, man, because, you know, coaches could go to that. I remember there used to be something called the McGuire Cup, Skip, when we were players. Yep. Uh, it's still, to be that's, the, that's still our national championships. The McGuire Cup, I know, I, I, I played in that, and it's, um, it's been around since 1935. See, I think it's the oldest youth sport trophy in the country. So it is. Here we uh, graduated high school. Yeah. That's about right. (laughs) (laughs) It came up. Well, this is all good stuff. You know, I always hearken back to the model. Uh, It's probably a a dated reference now, but I remember hearing about Carney. Carney would, you know, the Scottish and and, and Irish, they would just let those kids play and they didn't care if they won. They wanted them to play correctly, the right way, have fun. They'd come back to the clubhouse afterwards and it was great. It didn't matter whether they won or lost. And at 13, 14 years old, they started to never lose because they were playing properly. They were just knocking it up 95 and everything. So, Skip, you got uh, – you do God's work, brother. This is awesome. I think for us to get to a World Cup and to export more U.S. players, we, uh, we, we've got to do it more efficiently, and I think you're, you're on the right path. Well, we're, you know, we're trying. And, and again, it's it, – you know, there are – there are hurdles to everything. And, you know, as much as we can say how great USYS is, we also have hurdles. I mean, if you think about it, we're an organization that has 54 state associations that are autonomous 501c entities that have their own bylaws and their own ways of doing things that, you know, again, back in this, you know, the dark ages, back when I played in black and white TV was in focus, um, you know, it didn't matter that New Jersey wasn't quite the same as Maryland or as Florida because we never traveled anywhere. But in today's world, you have that global approach to sport. And so one of the things that we're doing, you know, clearly is also trying to get some continuity and consistency across our own bandwidth. You know, case in point, we, we have, we, we started last year, something called our member management center, where we're able to upload all of the player registration data. And now we're starting to look at it from a data analytical perspective for research. You know, we, we registered 2.3 million kids. Now we're going to be able to see where they are, where are the hot trends, where, you know, what's going on that most sports started years ago. One of the first things we looked at is kind of the registration model and we have 112 different designations for the term player, you know, when they register. And again, it seems simple, 
But in the grand scheme of things, you know, again, for college coaches, if they're going to look at players and they see it from a registration standpoint, if they have to sort through what, you know, one state is versus another and how do they match up, it, it makes it a little bit more confusing. So, you know, I said at the beginning, you know, the, the pandemic, we have to look in the mirror to be able to tighten up what we offer out there. We can't worry about what anybody else is doing. We got to make sure that everything at USYS is up to speed for tomorrow's players today. And it, it, it can't happen overnight because again, you're, you're dealing with so much, but we're going to get there. You know, Chris, that's interesting. We were talking about data before you even got on skip uh, about how it, you know, they it, it's it applies to a player now you know all that they never had that data when we were playing but they have it but obviously administratively this is a, this is a big deal because you can quantify things and organize things in a, in a certain way and and have yeah. the numbers to prove what what's working and what's not yeah well as a as a college coach if i put that hat on you know it's we're flooded with emails and information so the more we can get to the point of what a player's profile is the easier it is um, but, you know, even being close to, you know, the previous U.S. soccer presidency, that campaign and all the, the, the business of the people running there, almost every candidate in that race was talking about the fractured landscape at the youth soccer level. And I've been in it long enough to know that players aren't in one league. You know, there's too big of a country and there's lots of little nooks and crannies out there where you can find a good player. So, you know, if we could somehow align that with a magic pill, which is the, the dream. Uh, that would be great. Sounds like we need U.S. soccer to, to have a big say in that as well and partner and not just leave it to the masses. Um, but it'd be great to get everybody in, in the room. And certainly, you know, having Skip in the room will help because we, we want to be able to answer questions a little bit more easily. And I say that with all the hats I wear as a college coach, as a parent, as just, a, you know, I get so many questions just from families in the community. Hey, my kid is nine and she does this pretty well where should i play her and i don't really have a straight answer because there's no linear path so well, I, I always end up answering it with hey let's try to find you the best possible coach which skip it that's a question is like where are you guys in terms of like coaching development what do you put into that yeah no uh, you know obviously we leave at the upper end of the coaching spectrum we leave that to u.s soccer they've got the c the b the a right. licenses Years ago, U.S. youth had a youth curriculum for a youth license. And again, before my time, it was supposedly one of the best ones out there. Um, we're coming together with the United Soccer Coaches to really focus on the grassroots support mechanism. You know, because again, if you think about player development, so many of the six, seven, and eight-year-olds, they're not in front of paid long-time soccer coaches. They're in front of a parent. And the parent is going to be giving that kid their first experience to youth soccer. And if the parent, even if the parent had played soccer growing up and more and more are coming in because they played in college, they don't know how to coach. And so we've partnered with Mojo and their bunch of Disney execs that, that, are, that have come up with something called the one minute clinic. Um, and it's a, it's all video and you can punch in a bunch of things and it'll show you exactly what you can do with your swarm ball, you know, and, and so, but to be able to offer those kinds of curriculum support so that parents don't have to go spend hours, you know, going through an online curriculum, they're spending hundreds of dollars. They're just getting it down and dirty. I've got a bunch of seven-year-olds. I'm going out there today. What the heck can I do? 
um, here are some of the key important me you know messages and here's here's what sevens are thinking and nines and what the 11 you know whatever age group we need to be more specific but more tailored to the fact that it's got to be fun. It's got to be, you know, you don't want kids just standing in line for 20 minutes to take a shot at goal. That does right. nothing for them except, you know, let them look at the, the grass growing and watch the birds fly over. Um, and, and, and we've all been on the pitch when that's happened. You know, it's interesting. Well, one thing, one thing I think is interesting that we didn't have, Skip, I keep referring back to when we grew up, but the great soccer that's on television now, not just MLS, Premier League, all that, you know, the, the kids are out there watching it. So I think in your backyard, before you get to your practice, you should be practicing. Um, and that's what I tell parents, just unrestricted, you know, unstructured play, get out there. Yeah. And, enjoy and, and here's where almost I get on that that soapbox again. I mean, back when in the dark ages, Kevin, when you and I were playing, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had um, this week in the Bundesliga. You know, you had a couple of you know hour segments that gave us our fix. But you were right the the, the ability for kids to go out and just play. And I saw a very disturbing statistic two weeks ago that said the number of kids that are no longer reading for fun has dropped tremendously and is dropping year after year. And I'm thinking, all right, if kids aren't playing for fun, if they're not reading for fun, what in the world are they doing for fun? And so, again, the narrative has gotten to the point where either, A, they're so scheduled that they can't breathe. They've used, you know, their phone now. You know, you walk through an airport, and instead of trying to work with kids to get them to behave, you know, a parent will just put their phone on a three-year-old's lap and try to divert them that way. You know, again, so we've, we as a society has to be a little careful that we don't weed kids away from wanting to do things because their heart tells them to do it. You know, I used to read just for the fun of it because I enjoyed right. it. I played soccer. You know, my, I wasn't playing because my dad or my mom wanted me to play. I played because I loved it. You know, I couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, and, and, and Chris, you know, I'm hoping I will, I would speak for you on this as a coach. I will take a team filled with kids that don't have much technical ability, but they've got the heart because they love it over a team of all stars that really could care less if they're there or not. Because I would say at the end of the day, we can mold that team to be one heck of a squad over the kids that seem to just do it because they're gratifying something else. I'd love to play. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think those two thoughts are connected because it seems like parents are saying sometimes if the kid's not going to play pro, why bother playing? Or if you're not going to go to an Ivy League school, why study? Like, why breathe? You know, it's not, you know, it's, so it's sort of like we've lost the value system, man. So you're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. And I'm, I'm happy for you, Skip. You got some really great stuff going. Uh, CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, Skip Gilbert, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm going to give that number out again. It's 424-229-2247. If you have any questions uh, for us or for Skip to follow up on what he's talked about today or to get more information, give us a call and, and we'll, Skip will get you those questions and, and maybe you can answer it from some of our listeners. Happy to. Anytime. Good stuff. We appreciate you being on OTB. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. All right. We're back on OTB. Always great talking to Skip Gilbert. Uh, Chris, I'm glad you got a chance to talk to him. He, uh, he's passionate about soccer and about making changes, but there's a lot of resistance to what he's trying to accomplish. There's a lot of egos, a lot of, uh, like you said, different programs, different things. He's got a lot to deal with. I'm not sure if his hair was gray when he took the job two years ago, but it is now. 
Yeah, it's nice to see his background, though, with, you know, U.S. swimming and tennis, uh, U.S. tennis as well. And, you know, he's done different things. And I think sometimes that can bring a fresh perspective, yeah, to this issue. Um, But, I mean, he's very well thought out and he's a good communicator. And I hope he's a voice at the table because, I mean, we're sitting here and what do we all want as fans? We want to win a World Cup. You know, the right. women have won a World Cup. We all want to win a World Cup on the men's side. We won an Olympic gold. We, we want to keep winning at that international level. And it, it, to be better aligned, to be more efficient at the youth levels, that's our ticket forward. So hopefully his work helps us get there. Yeah, you know, you mentioned his background in all these other sports. And I, I thought that was one of the most appealing things because that's what reminded me of Hank Steinbrecher, who sort of took the game to another level. Hank was a college coach at BU, and then he went to work for Gatorade. And he saw NASCAR, he saw football, he saw all these other big sports entities and how they operated and how professional they were. And he said to me, he goes, Flinny, too many mullets and flip-flops in soccer. It's, it's a business, man. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a sport for the kids, but you get to that higher level, it's a, it's, it's a business. And so I love the fact that Skip has a, a diverse sports and business background. So it's uh, so best of luck to him. It's the, uh, the champions cup. So, Hey, so last week, uh, or even this weekend, some great games were on. I don't know what you watched, but uh, Tottenham knocked off man city, which uh, helped Liverpool move up a little bit in the rankings. I think it's down to a six point difference now. Uh, so six there's a race. Point. Yeah. yeah. So six points for there. the game in hand, six <clears throat> points for the game in hand. So if Liverpool can take care of business, they're three behind and, yeah, I always look at it from a different perspective as a coach because it's uh, I don't have a quote-unquote favorite team or anything like that, but I do like to follow right. coaches. And to see Conte at Tottenham uh, and Pep at Man City, I mean, that's a master class there. It's always good to watch those games because you always pick up a couple little things here and they have such drastic styles and you know how the game has to go for each team to win. So it's fun to see it play out. Right. And when Man City loses, they have a tendency to go on a tear. And so that might happen. But what was interesting was Harry Kane was the man of the match, I thought. Played a fabulous player, but uh, had been in a bit of a slump. Talking about going to Man City of all places. And then, um, and then he stays at Tottenham and then they knock off Man City. So it's, yeah, it would have been interesting to see if, if Kane had come to Man City at one point. That would have, uh, that would have really tipped the scales. But, uh, tipped the scales? You know, they're, already, they're already tipped, Chris. It would have just been ridiculous. Yeah, but you know, if they had a Holland or a, or a Kane or – oh, my goodness. I mean, they become – is it untouchable at that point, you know? Right. But to see Conte play or set up his team in a way where, you know, they know they're going to suffer, they're willing to do it, and then they're going to say, hey, we're going to pick and choose sometimes in a smart way to get forward quickly. And other teams try to do it, but they do have the class with Son and Kane to actually hurt the opponent. And this is like the age-all question for Pep, in my opinion, is, you know, the Champions League and how he hasn't won since Barca and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. the way his game model is, is you can get exposed on the counter. And, and when you're playing some of the lesser teams, they may not hurt you. But when you're playing some of the best teams, uh, they can get you. And maybe that's a part of the reason why he hasn't won more Champions Leagues. Uh, Manchester United eked out a win. Um to, to move up a bit, keep their top four alive. Um, came back, but they gave up some goals late though, um, which, which is, which is always a problem. That Manchester United team, you just never know who's going to show up. Yeah. It's a really funky group of players and they keep rotating the managers and no one can really make heads or tails of it. And it almost seems like a group that just needs to be kind of, you know, blown up and get the roster changed again and go through that. Cause the managers aren't having necessarily the influence. Plus also, 
you know, is Ragnick the right guy for that? I mean, he's obviously very successful with what he's done with the Red Bull model, but I'm not sure that roster was built to play that way. So we'll see. And that's yeah, why they're trying you know, to find a style. They're trying to find a style. I've enjoyed, you know, you talk about not having a team that, to root for, and I really haven't had one as well, but I've been, I've gravitated towards Liverpool just because I like the way they play. Uh, I love to watch these great strikers up top working their ass off to get goal side and hustling, doubling down on balls and things that you just don't see from world-class strikers like that usually. And so they did well in Champions League. They did well over the weekend. So uh, they're the team to watch, I think, right now. If anybody can, can knock Man City off its uh, mantle, it'll be them. Yeah, I mean, Klopp is fun to watch just as a manager, right? He just seems like your uncle's coaching the team, right? And he's like, exactly. when they score, he's, he's like a fan when they score, and it's kind of fun. But, you know, don't be deceived. He's one of the smartest guys in the room. And uh, he's been able to really wrap his hands around that team. And it's a really fun team to watch in so many ways. It's a fun, like that's back to your point when you were talking to Skip, uh, to have fun. They look like they're having fun. It's, it's a lot easier to get goal side, work hard when you're winning and you're all doing it and you're all because you're a team and you're, you're happy. So it's, I don't get that from Man City. I don't get that from them. They seem like they're incredible individuals who just play that a little bit of ticky-tacka maybe, but um, they don't seem to be having fun. Yeah, I mean, Pep's different, you know, and that's why he's always kind of left places after X number of years because it, it might be hard for the players to stick with him for a long time because there's an intensity there and less fun, quote-unquote. I'm sure he would push back on that, but, you know, from the outside looking in, that's the perception for sure. But I think he counters it by getting young players, that he can kind of control the older ones like the Zlatans and all that. They don't go for his stuff um, because he's very controlling. And so they find success. So they go with it. But at what point does it turn the tables? He stayed at city for a while and it's still gone well. So he's got something you know, to say here. That's an interesting point. I wonder if that's the way the game is moving now, they're all millionaires before they're 18, 19 years old, uh, I, because it seems like with Mourinho, that the ship has left, the ship has sailed. People don't want to hear it from him because he blames the players for losses. He has no, he's the arrogant sort of uh, leader that used to be a head coach where you'd be like my way or the highway. Now players are sort of like, yeah, go screw yourself, man. Yeah, Mourinho, I mean, I'm a big fan of his work, especially going way back to Inter Milan and all that stuff. Some of my favorite teams. I think with him, it's, uh, you know, he does a great job when he's in the underdog role. And he was that as an underdog coach coming up through Porto, through all these different levels, he can circle the wagons, as they say, and kind of get a group going. But now that he, you know, he kind of lost his way at Real Madrid and he, you can argue he's never really recovered it. And part of it is, I think he's such a high profile coach now that he's always at these big clubs and they don't fit the underdog role anymore. So right. how does he adjust? And he hasn't really dialed that in to find success. He should take on Stoke and try to build and try to build them up at the top of the table. That would be that would be a big coach. I always see these great coaches come along and they have all these dollars to play with and all these players to play with and they're great coaches. I was like, you want to be a great coach? Try try getting somebody out of out of relegation zone. That that would be hard. You know. Well, I think if you if you actually asked him in confidence and said, okay, here you go, I can give you Stoke. I bet you there's a part of him that say, I'll take that challenge. I would love that challenge, but he just doesn't want the Stoke paycheck. That's the difference. well, man. He's got enough paychecks, man. That man makes a lot of money. He's got like I think three clubs are paying him right now. It's unbelievable, you know, at Roma. So, all right, uh, good stuff, Chris. Chris, uh, I've enjoyed this. Um, I love, uh, love having you as co-host on Over the Ball. It's, uh, it's working out well. And um, uh, so it, that's it. Uh, anything else you want to get to before we wrap it up here? 
All right. Uh, again, everybody, that, the phone number here is 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. Uh, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our guest, Skip Gilbert, the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer. They have the great Champions Cup coming up in August in Austin, Texas. I want to thank our producer, Alistair St. Hill, for Chris Shamides and Kevin Flynn. I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB. 